Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A society riddled with debt is a society that is reluctant or unable to spend. And a lot of that debt is now finding its way into housing with mortgages higher than ever. That's money that we're going to use to pay off our home loan that we could be using to keep the economy moving. In short, it is slowing the speed at which money circulates. So how do we fix it? The answer is to get rid of the debt. And Steve Keane has a cunning plan, a monetary reset. How would it work? We'll explore more on today's Debanking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So Steve Keen has been talking about a debt moratorium for some time now. Now it's uh, now it's the debt reset, but I think the idea is pretty much the same. Pay everyone money to bring down their level of debt, and so it's fair and equitable, pay money to everybody who doesn't have debt as well. Uh, now, we didn't have time to look at the mechanics of this when we were looking at Steve's housing policy for the New Liberals, uh, or whatever they're now called, the uh, the NLs. I'm not sure they're allowed to be called the New Liberals, but anyway. Uh, but look, the assumption is, Steve, I'm in debt. Say I've got a, a housing loan of a million dollars. I get $100,000 to reduce that loan, so I now owe $900,000. How does that help the economy, Steve? Well, a whole lot of ways, uh, because what we've allowed to have happen is far too much money be created uh, as credit-based money, and that money, rather than being used to you know, create real resources, has been used to drive up asset prices. And so if you look at the uh, if you look at British data or you look at Australian data or American data, say from pretty much from 1990 on, all the money that's been created by the private banking sector has been to drive up house prices. That's what it's actually done. Mm. So what we had was massively overvalued houses coming out of it uh, with a massively indebted household sector. And one of the side effects of the household sector being as indebted as they are now is you individually you look and think, oh, I better, I better save some money. So what I'm going to do is spend more slowly and therefore, yes, okay, more money will turn up in my account. But, gee, it's strange. My income seems to be falling as well. And what we're doing is actually causing, because of the high level of private debt, the response to that is to slow down how fast we spend. That reduces the, the velocity of circulation of money, and GDP falls right. as a result of us trying to save more money individually. So, that, so you've got a whole lot of traps out of this too right. much private debt. So that 100000 that I've suddenly got, I mean, that should uh, we should see the multiplier effect kick in. I spend that money on something, buying something, I pay, that, pay no, someone. No, you don't. That. I would have thought that would no. be the benefit, wouldn't it, that I've freed up some money no, that I can spend the in the broader economy? Because one of the... One of the dangers is if you actually did that, uh, you, you, you look at Australia had, a, had an example of this back in the 2008 financial crisis when I think some bastard called Steve Keane scared the, scared the Prime Minister into, into a huge stimulus package um, back <laughs> so in those days. Fault. It probably was your fault. You yeah. have a lot to answer for, don't you? All Everything you're complaining about now, yes, you might be the man behind it all. Yeah, they all came back and bit me. But anyway, the, the, the one one of the things that the Rudd government did in its stimulus package was give everybody. So it was, I think it was nine hundred and forty dollars. It wasn't actually quite a thousand, mm. but anybody who paid their tax return that year got effectively a thousand dollars. They call it a tax rebate, 
Now, what it meant was thousand bucks in your bank account. And where did most of that money go? Flat screen TVs bought through Harvey Norman. Yeah. Okay? So, uh, so people just basically went out and spent the money straight away. So the government created money came in and rather than reducing debt levels, people did some of that, but predominantly they used it to spend more. Now, I'm not complaining about the lack of purchases of flat TV screens, flat screen TVs. What I'm complaining about is far too much private debt and you want to reduce that. Right. So the idea of this monetary reset, as we're calling it, is that everybody would get an identical amount of money. The target would be, and it wouldn't be done on a, on a single day. This is the sort of thing you do gradually and you might test with a, a small amount initially to see how it works. But you give the money um, to everybody on an equal basis. Those who have debt, their debt has to be paid down those who have no debt or less debt in the amount of money that comes through the monetary reset uh, could be required by the reset, and I'm still working out how we, how we, whether we do this or not, could be required to buy bonds, government right. bonds. Okay, well, let's, let's go into that bond issue in a second. So, But the reason for, yeah. for bringing my debt down, presumably, okay, I mean, I've, I, I can't spend 100000 but I've got, I've, I've got less repayments now to my bank, so I am freeing up a bit more money, which I can now... Spend in, yeah. the, spend in the economy, and hopefully I'll pay off my mortgage faster as well. So there's less money being tied up uh, attached to that asset of my house because I'm going to pay it off that bit quicker. So that's going to help the economy grow, presumably. That does. I mean, this is when, when I stimulate this and uh, using Minsky to do it, what I get is a boost to the economy because, again, what you're doing is you're, you're creating money equally across the whole of society and what that means is, and just in a very simple little model that I've done with the, basically a government sector, non-bank financial sector, and a bank, uh, a non-bank economy sector of the economy, and the bank section of the economy, because the bank spends more slowly on the on the real economy than it than uh, than we as ourselves do, by simply redistributing the amount of money, you actually get an increase in spending, mm. and that's the and and that's uh, you know you get a, a necessary boost to GDP because you're if you give it equally to everybody, there will be more people who are renters getting that money who'll spend it more rapidly. Uh, the, the, the spend, if the money gets redistributed, so it's more in the hand of renters than it is in landlords, then you'll get a boost to economic activity out of it. And that's what turns up in the simulations. If there was an unintended side effect, because the, the main thing is that let's reduce the amount of credit-based, debt-based money and increase the amount of fiat-based money because it was a mistake to allow banks to create this much debt money in the first place. So this is being paid for obviously by the government. So the, the each of these 100000 which sounds like an awful lot of money for the government to pay, and uh, if you're not across uh, MMT, you'd be going, oh, my goodness, just think of all that government debt that, that would be incurred through this. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing it being covered pretty much the same way that governments have operated during the uh, during the pandemic, in that it, yeah. they issue bonds. The intention is the RBA or whichever country you're talking about, their central bank, buys up those bonds. It gets added to the to the central bank balance sheet. So it is increasing the money supply isn't it by going through that process no, no it's not no it's not um if you require people to who have debt to pay their debt down and those who those who don't have debt have to buy government bonds then that also doesn't increase the money supply so it's possible to do a monetary reset in such a way that there's no change in the amount of money in circulation in the economy Right. So the only people who are losing out in that scenario are the banks that have issued those mortgages because they've all of a sudden... This, this is where bonds come in. And this, this again, 
once you start thinking in the accounting sense that Minsky forces me into and that modern monetary theory is also doing the same sort of thing, you get a very different perspective on on what's the role of, of government bonds. Because let's just, just take a simple example of government running a deficit. Uh, when a government runs a deficit, it puts money in people's private bank accounts and it puts reserve, maybe the, uh, there's exactly the same number in the reserve account system that private banks have. So let's say the government runs a deficit of a billion, this is a small number, a billion pounds, then there's a billion pounds increase in people's deposit accounts and there's a billion pounds increase in the reserve assets of the banking sector. Now, when you think about it, uh, because you and I get a benefit out of that, we get money in our pocket, um, we can go and spend uh, and what we do when spending, you know, I put money in Phil Dobby's account, he puts money in mine or, you know, we go both, we both put money in Rhodes' account to buy a new microphone and a new pair of headphones. Um, that sort of thing is is a positive for the non-bank sector. But what's what's in it for the banks? And the answer is nothing because reserves that they, the increase in reserves they get out of the deficit don't earn them any income and they can't trade reserves. So when the government says, we're now going to offer you bonds, sell bonds to the banks, you know, through the, what they call the primary dealers in America and then the bank, the general bank sector elsewhere. They say, well, would you like to swap that billion pounds of reserves we've created for you for a billion pounds worth of bonds, which will be paying, let's say, 5% interest. Let's be realistic back in the old days when it actually happened. Let's we'll say 3%, 3% interest, paying 3% interest. So you're going to get 30 million a year out of them. Uh, and you can trade them, buy and sell them and make capital gains out of them. We'll occasionally buy them off you and sell them back and so on. And every time we do that, you're going to come out ahead. Um, so the banks say, oh, yes, please. <laughs> Here's the billion dollars in reserves you've created for us. Now give us a billion dollars worth of bonds and pays 3% interest on that. So what that is doing is effectively giving the banks a 3% rate of return on the money that's created for the non-bank sector by the increase in their deposits out of the deficit. Right. So where does that, that, does, where does, where does that 3% come on? Because this is where people go, oh, hang on a second, this is government debt that's got to be paid, and that's exactly what they're yeah, talking yeah. about. Obviously, and the thing is, if, if, if you – and I've done the modelling of this in Minsky as well, which I'll happily share for this particular podcast. Uh, but if you – there's two ways you can go about it. The simple way is that the government would be saying we're going to pay 3% interest on these bonds, so we're going to go – the Treasury goes and borrows – 30 billion, having created a billion dollars in uh, government money that's gone into people's bank accounts and reserves as well. They then sell a billion dollars pounds worth of bonds. So the, the, the liability the Treasury now has is for these bonds, and they've got to pay interest on those bonds. Well, they simply say, we're going to borrow that $30 million a year. We'll borrow from the central bank. So the Treasury gets in debt to the central bank. Now, I've had people on my YouTube channel come along and challenge a neoclassical economist, of course, challenge me, that's not legally possible. The Treasury can't borrow from the central bank. And I, say, I said, well, what they do is they issue more bonds. And so long as the central bank buys that fraction of bonds, the government debt doesn't explode. So if you have a if you have a deficit of of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a billion dollars billion pounds and you then have a three percent rate of return on that, which means you've got to pay thirty million pounds per year, then if in the buying and selling that Treasury's the central bank is always doing with the banks itself or the, or the uh, on the bond market, if the bank, central bank buys three percent of that, so thirty billion thirty million a year, uh, then the interest doesn't compound itself and doesn't explode. So that's, a, that's a, a necessary role for the central bank to stop the money supply exploding and to stop 
an inflationary surge is to buy uh, bonds issued by the Treasury sold to the private banks equivalent to the rate of interest on the bonds that were used to to uh, transfer the uh, deficit funding from reserves to bonds. Right. Now, I'm, I might be being a bit slow here then. So the bonds that are issued to cover these, uh, the paying off of these loans ultimately are sitting with the commercial banks or they're being bought no, up? sitting with the Treasury, sitting, sitting with the central bank. Sitting with the, sorry. Okay. So it is just like QE yeah. in effect then, isn't it yeah. really? And then yeah. the, well, not so. I mean, the QE is actually buying off the, off the uh, that's the QE is the, is the reserve, the, the uh, central bank buying off the private banks or buying off the shadow banking sector. But uh, this would be the uh, central bank in its regular operations with the private banks buying uh, bonds equivalent to the interest on the bonds that were used to to finance the deficit. Right. What's what's and called, it, it, often with a swear word attached, monetizing of debt, which is seen as a bad thing yeah. by, by in some circles, but you're saying, no, that should be perfectly normal well, behavior. It's, but it, but, it's, it's, part of, it's part of the sensible operations of a fiat monetary system. But, so it, but you it, actually, you actually, but it does keep on adding to the balance sheet of the central bank. There's no, not that I'm saying there's necessarily yeah. anything wrong with that. But if you, but no, everyone, right. everyone gets yeah, very, they're, they're, everyone gets scared yeah, if they see it going up, and everyone starts talking about the need to bring it down. Well, but that's but that's trivial. When you, the, the the QE stuff is what's caused the huge increases. So QE is you know, a totally different story. QE is what they call non-standard monetary policy. The standard monetary policy is if the if the central bank is buying roughly bond, net buying over a year, bonds equivalent to the interest on the bonds that have been issued to cover the deficit for that year, then you'll get a very slow in rate of increase in the balance sheet of the central bank. But that will mean that the you effectively neutralise the inflationary potential of paying interest on those bonds. Mm. Interesting, isn't it, that uh, everyone's talking about central banks trying to reduce that balance sheet. It's interesting that, uh, uh, you know, and, and the, the reason for that is because everyone's worried that it's too much money and that uh, that money supply causes inflation. But There's you not know, enough money. <laughs> well, but it's bizarre, isn't it? Because even Jerome Powell has said that's rubbish. You know, that he, he I mean, last year was saying that, you know, the... Uh, inflation just comes from imbalances between supply and demand in the real economy. It has nothing to do with monetary aggregates. So if that's, well, yeah. if that's the case, why why are they trying to reduce the Fed balance sheet? Yeah, they should just live with it. I mean, mm. it's one of these side effects. Well, what the, 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 the reason they've been forced to have this ridiculous increase in the balance sheets is being run by neoclassical economists, they didn't see a financial crisis coming. They ignored the levels of private debt, and then they got involved in trying to rescue the only way they could do, which is by injecting money into the uh, reser- into the reserve accounts of banks, and then into the bank accounts of the non-bank sector when they bought bonds off non-bank financial institutions. So it's all uh, you know, it, it's a consequence of their own bad management that QE had to happen in the first place. Let me ask you a question and then give you the answer and see if it's the right one. Um, the- okay. <laughs> If you are taking money out of the finance sector and it's increasing consumption, then that's going to cause inflation, isn't it? My answer is, well, maybe that's not a bad thing because if you think about before the pandemic, we're worried about a lack of uh, a lack of inflation, and no. we need we need a small amount, and this is probably only going to create a small amount of inflation. No, the QE doesn't actually have uh, QE. Not the, the QE, not the not the QE component of it. The fact that I'm paying off my loan that much faster. And so I'm yeah. starting to take money out and, and spend it in the real in the real world. That's going to in, increase consumption. If you increase consumption, then you're going to get a bit of inflation as a consequence. Potentially, of that. what inflation and this this is 
Um, this is actually, if you look back at Bill Phillips's work on this front, um, he was focusing really on inflation being an income distribution thing, not something driven by the amount of money being created, but being driven by a struggle over the uh, distribution of income between workers and capitalists, uh, and also between raw material producers and manufacturers. And if you had a booming economy, which we had back at the end of the end of the sixties, beginning of the seventies, a booming economy. Uh, a strong and organised work, uh, working class with trade unions and mineral producers who suddenly had muscle because there was such a level of demand for oil at the time, then when they said, we're, gonna, you know, we're not going to you know, continue working unless you get us a 10% wage increase, and the mineral producers saying, we're not going to sell the oil unless you pay us four times as much per barrel, uh, then in that situation, the... the the prices would go up and the effect of the prices going up would be that the corporations who are paying these higher prices would extend their lines of credit to the banking sector and that would cause the money supply to rise. So it's reversed the causation where you think the money supply causes the rise in prices. It's the rise in prices causing the rise in the money supply. Now, I don't have debts. The money is given to me in bonds. So I I am not offsetting a, uh, a a debt now so does that make this new money i'm trying to figure this out no it doesn't make a new money it actually means that uh, when, when you when you when you get the money like everybody gets a hundred thousand let's say let's use a, a flat number just to make make it easy and that's not too far from what i've actually considered being necessary because you're actually are trying to reduce the level of household debt by about 100 percent of gdp because Taking Australia as the example, it's currently 120% of GDP and it's six times what it should be. So bring it down 100% of GDP. Now, that's so you have 100,000 per adult. And if the adults are in debt, then they must pay their debt down. So their debt falls uh, rather than the amount of money they've got rising. For those who aren't in debt, then they get 100,000. Now, you could require, and this is to, to neutralise the impact on the money supply, you could require that 100000 be used to buy bonds off the banking sector. So the banking sector is the first purchaser of what you call monetary reset bonds. They buy them equivalent to the amount of money being created by the whole monetary reset. Uh, and then they sell uh, the fraction of those bonds to the uh, p- people who didn't have debt, or didn't have his debt equivalent to the reset level. And that therefore means the money supply falls. Okay. Because you, your deposits go, fall, go down, your private holdings of bonds rise. So what you get out of it, let's say you had no debt at all, you get a hundred thousand dollars worth of government bonds yielding 3%. Now that's the start of it. You could then say, and this is also stuff I, I just have to work out. Uh, there'd be a lot of landlords who aren't going to do very well out of this. And I'm really sorry for them. You know, I'm ha- I'll happily know how to play the violin to show how sad I am. Um, so they're going to want to sell their places, and they may well want to be selling them to people who are currently renting, because the, the the farce of the last forty years is all these government schemes to promote home ownership have reduced home ownership, increased people in renting, locked out the youth. So the idea is to make it possible for the youth to get back into the market, and these bonds might well be the way to do that because there'll be a lot of landlords who aren't going to make capital gain anymore. They're going to have to liquidate their houses and they might want to sell them to renters. Yeah. I don't think it's just those schemes. Is I mean, house prices around the world without the government helping seem to be on the increase anyway, don't they? Because just because asset prices are 
are rising as people look for places to put their money. But if if yep. uh, let's take it through the the step by step then, just so we're all clear. I don't have a debt. I so the government has got a hundred thousand uh, dollars, which is earmarked for me. It's issued that. Uh, and the, it's been issued as bonds, which banks buy up. Now, the banks, aren't they, the, you're saying they transfer the money from the reserves to buy those bonds. So they're transferring reserves mm. money for bonds. The bank can't then sell me the bonds, can they? Because that's yes, like, they so, can. Yes, they but, can, but and they do all the time. But that's dipping money out. That's taking money out of their, their reserves. I thought they weren't able to do that. No, no, they're not taking out of reserves. When, if, you, if the government sells bonds to individuals, then the bond holdings of the banks go down, the reserve holdings go up. Right. Okay. So well, the, the, the banks have bought bonds off the off the government, so they've got treasury bonds, which is sitting as an asset in the banking sector, and they sell those uh, bonds to the to the public. Oh, then they get the cash. And the cash the goes back fall, into yeah. Then if the bonds fall, the side of the deposits. All right. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's like it's the same thing as paying debt down. So there's no change in the reserves in that situation. There is a fall in the ownership of bonds by the banking sector, and there's a fall in the deposit liabilities the banking sector has towards the public. Right. Makes sense. It's complicated, isn't it? But uh, this, is why, this is why I built Minsky, because I yeah. couldn't work this stuff out of my head without having Minsky as a guy. And, and then that's why, I'm, I mean, for Christ's sake, I want more non-orthodox economists downloaded and start using it because everything you verbalize in modern monetary theory, uh, you can explain using Minsky and it's the logic is far clearer. Now, I've got bonds now. I didn't have debts. Now I'm holding government bonds. So I'm getting paid interest on those bonds. It's almost like a, a reverse tax, isn't it, from, from the government? For not, you haven't got a housing loan, so we're actually going to pay you money rather than tax you. Um, but uh, that where's that money coming from to pay for that interest on those? Well, again, that comes, comes from the Treasury. It so comes pretty- from the Treasury, and then they monetize it through by... Uh, by having it covered by bonds which are bought by the central bank. The central bank pays, yeah, buys the yeah. bonds equivalent to that off the off the private banks because they're required to because they because the central bank can't lend directly to the treasury then it's got to be this roundabout route that has exactly the same output, outcome as if the treasury was borrowing off the central bank and of course since the treasury owns the central bank you can borrow off as much as they like and pay zero interest on it. So you've said in your paper which uh, is a heavy read for the average uh, Australian voter, I might suggest. Uh, but uh, you list the benefits, a dramatic and necessary fall in the indebtedness of the Australian public, well, because they're going to owe uh, 100000 less. Uh, and the benefits of, the, of that are just that they are going to be in a position to spend more at some point. Well, give me again, because the, the, everyone seems to be getting by don't they? I mean, even though we are heavily indebted, all around the world we're heavily indebted. And yet, uh, there were some figures I saw for the UK, actually, which I was going to use on the podcast last week, which I didn't. So let me just find it. The uh, okay. the, the proportion of people who, oh, I can't find it in a hurry, but basically the proportion of people who felt like they, even though the, um, you know, the level of debt has gone up, here we are, uh, the proportion of people who say that they have a, a heavy burden of financial debt in the UK has fallen from 20% of households in 2010 to 14% by 2020. 56% are saying it's no problem at all. So even though we're all in more debt because we've got bigger housing loans, the proportion of people who are saying that they have a heavy burden from this financial debt has actually fallen quite a bit. So even, which sort of doesn't 
tally with the numbers. I'm just wondering, assuming it'd be the same in many other Western countries, and perhaps it is in Australia. So, because I know lots of people who've got massive mortgages, huge houses, but still somehow managed to be getting by. Yeah, well, if you look at the like the velocity of money figures, I always prefer to look at the aggregate data. Mm. And that's where the American data is so useful, even though they've stopped showing quite a few of the series. There's been a general plunge in the velocity of circulation of money uh, from, I think, a high of about 3.5 times per year back during the Vocalo inflation period, uh, two, two times per year before then. So two looks like about 1.8 to two looks like the sort of sustainable level for monetary turnover in America uh, before we started getting into this period of financialization. Uh, but now we're down below one. So what you have is, if you, and, and then the rate of growth of the economy is slowing down as well. This also turns up in my Minsky model of rising levels of debt cause a decline in the rate of economic growth. Um, so you have all these things which are constraining the economy and meaning we spend our time talking about financial bloody uh, 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 manipulations rather than innovation, capitalist innovation. Mm. So that's the other thing I see to, to be particularly negative about the world we're in. We are, we are all talking about how to financialize things, not how to innovate. And that's undermining the one strength that capitalism has over other social systems. Right. But how does paying off this debt, uh, paying, you know, so I've got 100000 less in my mortgage, how, how is that directly relating to innovation? Well, a lot of it is because you, you, it doesn't doesn't directly relate to it, but you you cease making spending, bank selling money or make, giving money to people to speculate on house prices, make that no longer a profitable line of, of bank business. And if you want to be profit as a bank, you've got to provide working capital to corporations. You have to find some way of financing entrepreneurs. Uh, make banking creative once more, rather than becoming the brain dead nonsense it's doing of of just financing asset bubbles so you say another uh, another benefit is going to be a matching increase in the public's financial equity the pressure to speculate to achieve financial security for your future is substantially reduced i mean that might be seen in some circles as a bit naive because people will always speculate won't they when they you know irrespective you know there's there's never enough People will well, no, like if you go, you look, you look at the 50s and 60s, I mean, people were doing it slowly in the 50s and 60s, but the real speculation uh, was really pushed by the financial sector onto the rest of the economy. Because if you had a, if you have a substantial amount of money coming in for your income alone, uh, if you have the, the government spending, creating more aggregate savings for you over time, so your bank account is rising, you're not feeling vulnerable. You don't think, oh, God, I've got to find some way to get a, an extra gain, I might go and buy that non-financial asset and see if its price rises and then lever myself up. This whole speculative mindset has really only started coming in since the 1970s. It's not something that was uh, commonplace in, in the household sector before we went to this period of neoliberal dominance of the, of the economic policy and letting the banks do what they damn well like. So I really do think it's if you had the, if we could restore the, level of government money creation that occurred in the 50s and 60s, uh, we would have less motivation to speculate because that government money creation alone would put the household sector in positive equity. And uh, they said the thing which really motivates you to speculate is the feeling you're going into a negative equity and you've got to get yourself out of it. And what can I do? I can buy a share or I can buy a Bitcoin and watch its price rise. So uh, th- there is the danger, though, if you if you you know in effect bail people out, so they you know so they they they're getting their debts down. 
could you sort of uh, repeat the behavior that we saw in banks that people become uh, less risk adverse because they've been bailed out I mean maybe they could do the opposite and people start going well look you know we got bailed out with a hundred thousand they're going to do it again uh, let's just speculate more well that's one reason why I want to cut out the the growth of asset prices that comes out of rising debt levels because at the moment there's a positive well an amplifying i hate the word positive because it's misinterpreted so much an amplifying feedback between rising levels of new household debt and rising levels of share prices and rising levels of house prices so i want to end that by i'd actually i'd prefer to abolish margin debt altogether so you're going to buy shares you buy it with your own money because uh, margin debt's been, a, I think, a, a, a classic net negative on its social benefit over time. Mm. So no more margin debt. I'd quite happily legislate against that. Uh, but in terms of household debt, limit the amount of borrowing that can be done to buy a, 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 a property to a multiple of the rental income of the property, whether that's actual or imputed rental. And my target would be half what it is now, the ratio of, uh, and certainly in Australia, of uh, house house mortgage to house uh, rental income is about 20 to 1. It should be about 10 to 1. And if you get to that point, there's a, you, you would then have houses being advertised for sale and you'd have the you know, you'd know the, imp- the actual or imputed rent for the house. So the rent was $1,000 a week or you know, uh, you know $50,000 a year, then the maximum you could borrow, and this could be actually published on the on the real estate ad would be $500,000. But the reason why everyone is in, investing in all of this and uh, and speculating is because they're shit scared about their pension, isn't it? It's, it's like how... Exactly, we're that's living the other thing. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, so right. But, and, yeah. aren't you inhibiting their ability to do that? And they're going to go, bloody Steve Keane, uh, here we are now. He's, he's stopped the growth in houses. Uh, he's now wanting to stop investment in... Uh, uh, borrowing to invest in shares. How the hell do I make sure I've got enough money to live off in my old age? You get a decent pension again. Because, again, one of these undermining of the pension system and trying to get it off the books of the government was all this driven by this fantasy the government should be running a surplus. Mm. So, that, again, this thing has put in a whole set of traps. If you had a decent pension, I like, you know. So, look, so you're, talking, the, you're talking about a decent state pension, so rather than private pension schemes. The, the yeah, state, the state the, pension, mm. which, which a, lot of the, a lot of the Nordic countries still have that. It's, you know, quite a substantial. It's certainly more than 25% of your salary. Between up to fifty percent of your of your you know last five years salary becomes your pension level, and that's one of the ways the government should create money because we have people who are, you know no longer able to work; they're too old to work. Um, and particularly thinking of people in manual jobs who don't want to work past sixty-five, you're getting arthritis. Why do you want to be on a production line? Uh, at that age, the state should then say, "Okay, we're going to provide a decent standard of living for you. You won't the same, not the same as you got paid for a wage, but you haven't got the costs of going out to get labour working either. You would have saved some money over the previous forty years of your working life. Here's a pension worth, say, half what your, what, say, a minimum level, so you don't get you know caught up in." Um, in poverty traps because you're in a low-wage situation to begin with. So some minimal standard of living and then with some rising amount if you're a higher-wage earner during your during your working life. So the, And that's the state creating money because these people seem to can't work anymore. We shouldn't require them to work. Um, so that, yes, re- restore the pension system as well. Getting rid of pensions was another 
neoliberal piece of garbage that's tied up with a whole property bubble we've had as well. I mean, the extent to which we've stuffed up what was a fairly well-functioning capitalist economy 40 or 50 years ago is quite breathtaking. Mm. Yeah, in the days of the mixed economy. I mean, we should just start talking about that yeah. again, shouldn't we? Yeah. So, look, Steve, uh, all of this seems a bit radical for one term of government, but if, uh, <laughs> but if even if you just get people talking, because the one thing I think is uh, w- one belief that is shared amongst everybody in economics in politics across all walks of life is the way things mm. are right now is not right we might all have different mm. ideas about how we fix it but i think there's a universal belief that things aren't going right and uh, and change is needed and we just need to f- figure out amongst ourselves which is the way forward so i mean the time is right isn't it and the time is right i mean we won't get into office this time around but i'll get a chance to uh, if i do get into when i get into the senate let's take a positive spin here <laughs> when i get into the senate uh, i will harangue on this particular point uh, and at least it will be forced the newspaper will be forced to cover it whereas at the moment this doesn't get out of the you know the nether worlds of strange podcasts well, thanks for that. Um, we'll catch you again oh, soon. It's, it's, it's Laurel and Hardy, mate. Where, where, is, your, where is your joint back to you? We'll catch you again soon. Thanks, Steve. Hey, mate. Bye-bye. Well, we'll, we'll be back with another strange podcast next week. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.